This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business. This episode is presented by Eco Soap Bank, a global humanitarian nonprofit that's working to save, sanitize, and supply recycled soap with hygiene education for the developing world. Hey, I'm Remy Brixen. I'm the founder and CEO of Freck Beauty. And to me, it's a matter of honesty. Founding stories often evolve over time, getting polished up to signal business objectives. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. The truth is building a brand is not only hard work, it often doesn't go as planned. In reality, it can be pretty messy. Picture-perfect founding stories help perpetuate narratives in the beauty industry that has never been easier to launch a beauty brand. In fact, this might be true. But what is also true is it's never been more competitive or required more money to scale a startup in this category. It's not always easy to be radically transparent about your missteps, but there is a generosity of sharing these stories so others can learn from them. Remy Brixton, CEO and founder of Freck Beauty, built a brand from her obsession with freckles. It hasn't always been easy and some of her struggles were very public, but she turned defeat into a cult community-driven brand in growth mode, while remaining brutally honest about what success has taken. So Remy, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me, Kelly. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So I don't really think that we can sort of start this conversation without diving into your obsession with freckles (laughs) and a little bit about your background and how you turned an obsession with freckles into a business. I know, right? It's funny because I feel like everybody knows that my brand Freck Beauty is known for freckles, but it actually is, you know, a lot of people don't put that together. So I'm Remy. I'm the CEO and founder of Freck Beauty, and I am obsessed with freckles. I've always been, and I wish there was like a crazier, more wild uh, story, but really it is that I have always been obsessed with freckles. I'm from Seattle, so obviously not a lot of sun. I'm very pale, so I never had freckles growing up. And if you look at my childhood drawings, like the sun has freckles, the plants have freckles, the cats have freckles. So I just always have been obsessed with them and always was really envious of people who had them. So Remy, in doing some research for our chat today, I have to say I have so much respect for your transparency when you've sort of shared what it's taken to build your brand. You know, so many founding stories are told in this perfectly crafted narrative, a bit of revisionist history, and often done for the purpose of raising money or landing retailers. But in reality, the reality is usually far less polished and full of missteps and a lot of hard work. What was the vision you had in mind when you set out to launch a beauty brand in 2015? Yeah, it's a great question. And thank you for noticing because it's one of the things that I really pride myself on because it's hard and it's really intimidating. And I think that it's a disservice to future entrepreneurs and trailblazers to not be honest about what it takes to really build something. But to be totally transparent, um, (laughs) like I said, I just really wanted freckles always and forever. And I kind of had this idea, like, wouldn't it be so cool if you could just put on your freckles with your makeup? And I kind of sat on it forever. And at one point I 
said it out loud to a girlfriend when I was in college. And she was the first person that I said it to. And she was like, oh my God, that's such a great idea. I would love to be able to wear freckles. So I think, you know, to answer your question, like there's so many pitfalls and steps that have happened since then. And now that it's like, it's almost impossible to remember everything. Um, But I think that it's just putting one foot in front of the other over and over and over again. And every time you mess up, just learn from it and talk to people about what you're doing because it's way easier once you say it out loud to somebody and it kind of gives you the inspiration and, and makes you think that your idea has legs. So when you were putting together the brand, did it start with that one product and then you kind of built the brand around the freckle product? Yes, definitely. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Let's go back to this. your question. I want to, I want to hear the story. uh, Classic Remy. Sorry. I'm like, like, okay, that's a great answer, but, uh, how'd you do it? How'd I do it? Yeah. So, okay. I came up with the idea, told my friend in college, she was interested in the idea. And then I sat on it and I was like, you know, when you say, you know what they should make and who's they, you know? Right. And I sat on the idea for literally years. Like when I first initially had the idea of a cosmetic that would give you freckles was in probably like 2009 or 2010. Flash forward to January 1st, 2014, I met this woman named Melissa and she had decades of experience in cosmetic manufacturing. And I told her the idea, which I was kind of nervous about at the time, right? Because everyone says like, don't share your idea. But I was like, why not? You know, maybe Mm -hmm. they'll make it. They'll make it. And she was the first person who actually knew what she was talking about to say, this is actually a really interesting idea. And if you're serious about it, here's the first five steps. And then, you know, I would get on calls. She then became my mentor. And so shouts to Melissa, I wouldn't be here without you. (laughs) But I just kept chugging away, you know, and she kind of held my hand a little bit in the beginning. But again, the idea was like total side project. I was an interior designer at the time, had not even fully developed my own personal relationship with beauty for myself. And I just (laughs) on a whim wanted to figure out the puzzle. So I just kind of kept cranking away at the little pieces. Then when we launched just with the one product, Freco G, I just thought it was like, you know, I'd be like slinging freckles on the side. Maybe eventually I would like sell some of them. And the, the dream for me was like, maybe I would be able to, to buy a house because I live in LA. So if you're an interior designer in LA, forget about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> at least in the beginning of your career, you know, so I kind of was just like, this is fun and it's a side project and I'll do it until, until it doesn't serve me any longer. But I, I really never in a million years thought it would get to where it is right now. So to answer your question, it just really was like, it was fun for me and I like figuring out puzzles and I like putting one foot in front of the other over and over again. And I can't, I'm so lucky and the team is so amazing and that that's a huge reason why we're here, but yeah, never in a million years. I think this would happen. Also, it wasn't sort of smooth sailing. You almost had a first incarnation of the business and then Mm -hmm. almost a point two version. Uh Honestly, in my personal experience, I think failure can provide so many important learning moments in the evolution of brand building. And they're going to happen no matter how much you know about the business or you don't know. Creating a beauty product is a complicated supply chain and things go Mm -hmm. pear-shaped all the time. 
So do you mind sharing a little about sort of like those early days and that first incarnation of the brand? I know you had some funding issues. You had a marketing strategy. There was a viral mm-hmm. moment, <laughs> both a good one and one that you weren't so happy about. <laughs> yeah, happy to. So Freck 1.0. So it's actually really funny because like even if you just think about the name, it's ridiculous. It started out as Go Freck Yourself. <laughs> Which I was like, okay, that's a little bit aggressive. So I launched a Kickstarter under the name Just Freck Yourself. Again, still still aggressive, but whatever. And the Kickstarter was for a semi-permanent freckle cosmetic. So it was, if you can imagine, like it was adhesive medical tape that had a bunch of holes punched into it. And then you would apply the tape to your face and use a rollerball filled with pigment and like rollerball the pigment over the holes so that when you remove the adhesive tape, the freckles would stay and the tape would come off. And the goal was to make it, you know, semi-permanent. So lasting a day or two, but definitely at least 24 hours overnight. So that went viral because at the time, you know, this was like 2015, everybody was into pretty full coverage foundation still. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of laser treatments for discoloration, hyperpigmentation, and freckles as well to remove them. So everybody thought I was crazy, <laughs> like everyone. And that's why it went viral. It wasn't like, oh, this is so cool. I mm-hmm. would love to be able to wear freckles. It was like, this girl is crazy. And what does she think she's doing? Um, and it even got on Jimmy Kimmel and he was like, I don't know what this girl is doing. They literally just ripped the Kickstarter, which was crazy. But mm-hmm. Then, you know, I kind of went into like a little bit of a hole. I call it a depression hole, but I, you know, I was having fun, but just took a, took a little nap and then knew from the Kickstarter, like so many people, well, not so many, like, you know, 5,000 people had started following my Instagram and for Freck. And so I was like, even if it's such a small, tiny niche beauty community, um, it's got legs. So I think that was like an aha moment. And I picked myself up by my bootstraps and went back to formulation. But I'm so glad that that Kickstarter failed, actually, like so glad. Because as you know, being in the beauty industry, semi-permanent on your face is almost nearly impossible because of the oils of the skin, right? So A, I would have just gotten sued, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if that had passed. B, the product was like way too expensive to make. It would have been like, you know close to like a hundred dollars for one little kit. You can imagine like all the pieces of like the medical tape and the formula and the packaging and everything. But most importantly, the hugest thing that I learned from that is that I started driving around LA and offering to give girls freckles when I just had my little lab samples, right? Just like test it and get Instagram pictures. And I showed them how to do it with the adhesive tape, but then I realized that all the girls, what they started doing is removing the rollerball and just taking a brush and dipping it into the formula and applying it to their face, which is flash forward. What exists today is Freck OG. So all that said, there's a lot of ups and downs, but I'm so glad that that Kickstarter failed. And, and yes, I think failure is like where you find the most, a, the most strength within yourself personally and professionally, but also it's where you pivot and realize, you know, different iterations to your product design and your branding and your marketing, everything, you know, those failures are really like what allows you to think and 
become even better and stronger. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of founders would have just thrown in the towel at that point. But, you know, when you kind of had that aha moment where you're like, oh, I can make this simpler. Mm -hmm. And you were actually watching how people were kind of engaging with the product. Was that sort of uh, the point where it kind of, I guess, the brand kind of distilled itself into something that was more commercial? I wouldn't say more commercial, just more approachable, I would say. And I don't mean approachable as in like, you know, we obviously have a very niche like aesthetic at Freck Beauty, but it became a moment from like the idea of like, oh, I'm really committed. Like I am wearing semi-permanent freckles. I am like literally dyeing my face to what it is now, which is like makeup is a tool Mm -hmm. for expression. This is a tool for me to express myself. And so that pivot was also key and opened up the market so much, which I, of course I didn't know that at the time, you know, I was just, I had no idea what I was doing, but I, you know, it ended up like making Freck OG approachable and widespread in a way that it never would have been before. Yeah. And so, you know, the big question for every person who has an idea of launching a beauty brand and they see someone like yourself that has sort of had this success is, you know, how do you fund it? Oh my gosh. I love this question because I, it's not talked about enough, right? Um, Or if it is, if it is talked about, it's talked about, you know, once you go down that funding path, you constantly have a narrative that you have to play because Mm -hmm. you're constantly thinking about the next fundraise. So the way you talk about funding is sort of the story itself becomes marketing, Yeah, exactly. No, totally. I totally hear you. Obviously, I tried to fund it myself with a Kickstarter, right? The goal was a quarter million dollars, and there was no way that that was ever going to (laughs) happen. It has happened on Kickstarter, but it wasn't going to happen for me with my like semi-permanent freckles. So what happened was after I, you know, kind of put freck aside and then came back to it, I had been reached out to by a group of brothers who had seen the Kickstarter. And they were also like, I think this has legs just based off of seeing how people connected to the, to the idea. Um, and one of the brothers had passed on investing in beauty blender. So he mm. like had a, you know, a vengeance and was like, Oh, and this is six, five years ago. So beauty blender was like on it, like on the top of their game. So they came and they're like, okay, we would love to invest and help you from a marketing consulting side and just kind of like help you because you're trying to do this on your own. We can help you. And I was like, okay. So I took, I think it was $15,000 to do the first run of production, just like as a test. And I gave them 20 to 0% of my business. Uh. I know. (laughs) But at the time, yep. I was like, I would rather have 80% of something than 100% of nothing, right? So, and I don't regret it, but that relationship, when we launched the product, finally, you know, we had a big surge of orders right away. And then I didn't have a marketing plan. I didn't have a business plan. Like I didn't know how often I was supposed to be posting on Instagram. I didn't even know that I was supposed to be sending email blasts to my mail lists, you know, and I had two full-time jobs at the same time, you know? So the relationship with them kind of soured because I wasn't able to dedicate the time because I had two other jobs. So then, sorry, this is a long story, but I feel like it's That's important. All, no, it's important. So please <laughs> let it um, unfold. Thank you. Thank you. So then what happened with those brothers is that they were like, oh, Remy, you're not 
living up to your fiduciary responsibilities, right? Which is your responsibilities once somebody invests in you to do everything that they're investing in you, right? Like, yeah, sure, the idea is great, but like they're really investing in you and what you're capable of. So not fulfilling those fiduciary responsibilities. And they asked me, they're like, Remy, we can take this so far. We can expand you into China. We, you know, all of the things that like we can get you into Europe, all this international distribution. And they said, why don't you give us the business? And we'll give you 5% of sales the first year, 4% the next year, 3% the year after that, and so on. And I almost, because I was so beaten down of like working so hard and always feeling I was doing everything wrong that I didn't even want to open my email box. So I was like so close and I almost gave it to them. And then I talked to my uncle, thank God. And he was like, what are you talking about? Like, no, you're not going to give your business to them. Like you've worked so hard. It's been so many years, so many ups and downs, but the business was making like no money at all, like zero money, like bleeding money. And I wasn't paying myself for anything. And I was waking up at like 6am to pack orders and then going to the post office before I went to my first job and then went to my second job. So I was just like really tired, really beaten down as I'm sure so many founders or people, you know, listening to this podcast have felt before. And so I was like, you know what, on principle, I'm not going to sell them the business, but I was like, I have to get out of this relationship. So I took literally every single dollar out of Freck out of my own personal bank account. And I paid them back $10,000 just to like sever ties. So I guess I won $5,000 or whatever, but you know, we just like severed mm-hmm. ties and I moved on and I told myself in that moment after I did it. So I was like flat broke. And I was like, okay, you're going to give this everything that you have for six months. I'm giving you six more months on this idea. And if it doesn't tick up or you don't have like an, you know, any sort of reason to believe that this is going somewhere, like you have to stop, you have to give up because at this point now it had been like two or three years of me, like pouring everything into this business instead of like my actual career um, at the time. So that all said, I remember, yeah, I was sitting in my parking lot, like going into my job and I was like flat broke. And I was just like, Oh God, like, I hope this is worth it. I hope this is all worth it. And I think like a week later, this influencer tagged us and it kind of all kicked off from there. It was crazy. It was like the first time that I realized like, Oh, you could use Instagram for marketing, whatever. But it also <laughs> was like, you know, yeah. And since then it's just been everything else is, has come since then with a lot of, a lot of hard work too. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so now to wrap up the funding question, we did recently take a raise in October of 2020, and we did a private friends and family in mid-2019 as well. And both of those relationships have been wonderful, but it's so important to know the people that you're taking on as investors before you do, because you're literally like married to these people. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, even if you ask investors, they'll tell you the same thing. It's hard to say no to money when you really need money. Mm -hmm. But it's honestly like having a founder. It's like being married to these people. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you give to people when sort of going into those fundraising meetings and kind of vetting, you know, vetting who you want to take money from? Yeah, it's a really good question. One other thing I wanted to mention is that after I bought out those brothers, I was so terrified of taking money that I, me I'm and, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like that, that's like the glossy version. Like it was actually even more like terrifying than that. But 
I ran with PayPal loans, like all sorts of really high interest debt for like a year and a half. So that was one way that I allowed the business to like actually grow to the point of having legs and then also deal with like, you know, supply chain issues and all the other reasons why you need funding. It was super, super expensive, but I was like, I'm never giving 20% of my business again ever period, but, and certainly not for a lot of money. But so when you're going into meetings with investors, I think it's really important upfront. And this is one of my mentors kind of taught me this is like, be honest with yourself and what is really important to you in these relationships. Like, do you want quiet money? Do you want strategic money? Like someone who's going to, and within strategic money, is it somebody who's going to help you with operations, with overall connections within the industry, with relationships to vendors that you want to be working with? Or is it kind of more of like a mentorship type of money? Is it important? Like one of the ones that was important for me, I was like, I would love to work with a VC company that was women owned. But at the end of the day, that's what I thought was so important for me when I was going into these meetings. But after taking so many of them before we finally you know, landed on Carp Riley and Stage One Financial, who have been amazing. I realized that strategic was more important for me than than women-owned, even though I would love to have both. At the end of the day, strategic was more important for me. At Beauty Matter, we're committed to leveraging the platform we've built and the community we've nurtured to help make change happen. Our first impact partner is the Eco Soap Bank a global humanitarian nonprofit that's saving lives by rescuing, recycling, and redistributing soap to communities that otherwise lack essential hygiene. Eco Soap Bank is quite literally changing the world, one recycled bar of soap at a time. As an industry, we can help them empower women and fight preventable disease. It's time to get involved. Learn more about partnership opportunities and the global impact a bar of soap can have by visiting ecosoapbank.org. And so where is the business now from sort of a distribution standpoint, sort of the size of your team? Because for a long time, you were sort of a one-man show. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. For a long time. Um, It's crazy. So like at the beginning of 2020, so right before COVID, we had, other than myself and my now business partner, who's my COO, we had um, three employees and now we have 12. So a year and a half later, we have 12, but I oversee all of our marketing side of the business. And so we have about like 20 contractors in addition to the 12 that we have in house. And we're growing very quickly. We expect to be at about 18 to 22 hires by the end of 2021. So that's crazy. And I'm just like, I don't know how we got here. It's wild. (laughs) And you know, even when you do that, there's still hiccups, there's still supply chain issues. There's still, you don't get an Instagram post up on time, even with all those people. It's just, it's crazy. It's just, even with all the support, which I'm so thankful for, it's, it's still really wild. And just even like having 22 Slack messages open at one time is wild. So do you remember kind of the tipping point of the brand from kind of a business standpoint? Yeah, I think I really thank our partnership with Urban Outfitters 
at the beginning of 2020, like literally, I think we threw the last party before COVID. Um, <laughs> we launched a line exclusively with Urban Outfitters, which was our cheeks line, which is our blush, uh, eyeshadow palette, and some colored eyeliners. Ex- so exclusively with them. And they were just amazing partners. And I think that that partnership got Sephora's attention. And, you know, we got the call shortly afterwards. And then it takes a long time to launch in Sephora. It takes about a year, or at least it did for us when you're a small business. So we finally launched in March in Sephora, which is hugely exciting. But yeah, I mean, honestly, the moment where I was like, oh, wow, was when we got the email from Sephora. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. I mean, that's, you know, for most indie beauty brands, that's kind of the holy grail, right? Oh my God. Yeah. It's Valhalla. It's it's like, I remember (laughs) in the beginning, I was like, I remember thinking, I was like on a walk. I was like, wouldn't this just be the craziest thing if this little hunch made its way into Sephora? And I was like, that will never happen, but it would be crazy. Right. And then flash forward, you know, however many years later, it's just, it's insane. Well, you got to put stuff out into the universe for it to manifest, right? But kind of from uh, nuts and bolts, what does it take? You said it takes a year, you know, or it did for you. The easiest part is getting the meeting and Mm -hmm. getting the yes. The harder part is getting the sell through and staying on the shelves. Yeah. So from your experience, they reached out to you. So you had sort of the upper hand from from that perspective. But once you got the yes, what did it look like to sort of set yourself up for success? It's so funny because I think that like you were talking about manifestation, like we really wrote down our goals for 2021 in preparation for our Sephora launch and they were not sexy. It was like... (laughs) get into a best in class 3PL, which is third party logistics. So we were literally shipping orders out of our office, which we moved into our office right before COVID. Before that, it was my garage in Echo Park. So we were still shipping orders one by one, hand by hand. You know what I mean? So that was one huge thing that we had to do in the year, figuring out like we did some size adjustments to just be the correct size. Like we had a face moisturizer that was like six ounces, which is not... You can't, you can't it do lasts that. for like five years. It lasts for over, like it literally would go unstable shelf life before you could use it all. That's not a sustainable business model. So a lot of that kind of stuff and operationally and stage one financial, who's one of our VCs now has been like so instrumental in just like getting us to that next level operationally and organizationally that we didn't even know what we didn't know when we got the first meeting with Sephora. So that was huge. Like I think the- that's I think that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. You can't be successful in sort of a competitive environment like that unless you have someone by your side that actually knows what they're doing. Cuz to your point, it's like you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. And it's not your fault like if you're a first-time business owner, like you need people in your corner to help you with this kind of stuff. Otherwise, you make huge mistakes like we Oh my God, there've been so many mistakes as everyone knows, you know what I mean? And we've avoided a lot of them in this last year. So super thankful for that partnership. The clean beauty space is so crowded and there's a cacophony of claims of marketing, advertising. Mm -hmm. You've managed to break through the noise with a really unique brand and you've done it without sort of a massive amount of venture funding. 
And I really think sort of, I mean, just this conversation, it it clearly kind of comes from you. But the attitude of the brand, I think, is one of its biggest differentiators. Can you share a little bit about your creative process in your own words? Like Mm -hmm. what differentiates you from the crowd? Take the freckles aside. Yeah. I think it goes beyond that hero product. It's really kind of the DNA of the brand that I think is so... It's kind of refreshing in a category that's become a lot of the same. Oh my gosh. First off, thank you so much. I'm so flattered to hear that. <laughs> Especially the part about taking freckles aside, because yes, I love freckles, but I'm also like, we got a lot more to, to, to offer than freckles. Than just freckles, <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say attitude because our, you know, brand statement is that Freck Beauty is an attitude. We're the bold, clean beauty brand for anyone who cares about ingredients, respects the process, and doesn't care about the rules. So you hit the nail on the head (laughs) as far as like our own self-identity, but what sets us apart? I mean, I think, and like in, in my creative process and I have an amazing creative team, so I don't want to take all the credit. My team is incredible, but I think from everything from product development to copywriting, to even just an Instagram post, like something that seems so simple, we try to be really honest with ourselves and like, are we making products, messaging, visuals, anything that deserves to be in the world, especially when you talk about product design and product development, because I don't want to put out another moisturizer just to have a moisturizer. And I don't want to have a negative impact on the earth. If I don't think that this is the best moisturizer that we can make for our price point and our audience and what they're asking for, and it deserves to be here. And I try to bring that essence into like email marketing design and like, you know, our playlist, like everything. Sometimes people think I'm crazy because they're like, you know, it's an Instagram post, like calm, calm down about it. But I'm like, (laughs) I don't think it deserves to have a place in the world. Like, why would I expect anybody else to? So I think we just really try to like stay true to that mission and be honest about it when we're creating assets and, and creating products and creating the brand. I mean, the only way that I know to kind of operationalize or scale that level of detail is to build a culture Mm -hmm. that kind of ingrains what's right and what's wrong for the brand Mm -hmm. in absolutely everyone who touches it. Yeah. So like, what is your culture like? Like, how, how do you create a culture that allows people the freedom to do their job, but Mm -hmm. still sort of inherently know what the North star is for the brand? Yeah. It's such a good question. And honestly, it's something that we still we're trying to relinquish me out of all of this. It's, right. Cause so you're not hard. scalable. You're only one person. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that, you know, the training process is like me trying to like clone. I wish I could download my brain and stick it into somebody else, but I can't obviously my graphic design team and also my my art director is like such a good example like she just has such an attention to detail that is that's what really what I'm looking for when I'm hiring in the first place like attention to detail and like you can look at two photos that are almost identical and you just need to be able to see the difference like Gordon Ramsay says and like this is so cheesy but (laughs) you can't you can't teach someone to taste Like you can teach them to cook. You can teach them all of the processes in the kitchen, but at the end of the day, they have to put the spoon to their mouth and be able to taste what they've created. And so that's really what I'm looking for when I'm hiring. But I have a lot of trust in the team and there always comes a point 
and it's been happening more recently, which is great, where I, you know, take each employee aside and I'm like, you're here because you're great and like you have amazing taste and you deserve to be able to make these kind of decisions on your own. And obviously I'm still here and like creative director for the company, but I think it's honestly just time. And it's not like we're at Glossier level yet where anyone can speak Glossier, you know, Mm -hmm. I hope to be there, (laughs) but right now it's still like, you know, we're still like honing and identifying everything that makes the brand special and being able to scale that. But yeah, it's hard. Super hard. Well, you know, I also think that the the other thing that sort of struck me was, you know, there's a lot of talk about community. It's one of those ubiquitous boxes everyone checks. And I don't even think people actually really uh, sometimes understand what building a community is or takes. Mm -hmm. But you have built a really highly engaged, loyal community. Can you describe sort of who they are and why this community is important Mm -hmm. and how you did it? Yeah, They are super creative. They are extremely independent thinkers. They are extremely self-expressive and makeup and beauty to them is all about self-expression. It's not like, and I think that's why our audience leans very heavily Gen Z. It's not about here are the tools to make you beautiful. It's like, here are the tools to help you express yourself creatively. And if that looks like I just want a moisturizer and go this morning, that's awesome. If it's like, I want orange eyebrows and flame eyeliner or like, you know, <laughs> thumbprints of eyeshadow all over my face. And like, I'm going to go to the grocery store like that. That is also awesome. And I think like, I would love to take credit for the community, but I think a lot of it was just like early on, connecting my, this was back when, you know, I was running the Instagram solely and just like getting in DMS with people and like really actually having conversations with people and trying to learn as much about the community that immediately identified itself and being able to double down on that and speak to that, like creative artistic community, as opposed to let me build it and see if they'll come. Like, let me listen to you and understand you and what you, what you want in a creative beauty space. And like, let me try and facilitate that for you guys. Like you can't shortcut community. (laughs) It takes time. It takes conversation. I don't think you can outsource community. Mm -hmm. You know, you just kind of have to connect with people one by one by one. And Mm -hmm. then eventually it hits kind of an inflection point. But yeah. You know, I think everyone everyone who has built a community always has the same the same response. Like I'm in the DMs, I answer the customer service. I know. I mean, you want it to be something else. <laughs> you really do. But it's just about understanding and listening and like honestly not like being a therapist but being a sounding board. And I think that's what makes like beautiful brands and all the brands that I look up to like used to the people I think does an amazing job at being a just a sponge from their community and understanding what they want and what they need and and how they like to be spoken to and what their values are and then facilitating that for them. Well, I also think it's it's a key differentiator in sort of creating a culture because if Mm -hmm. you have a founder that has been in the weeds on customer service and in DMs, Mm -hmm. they understand the consumer Mm -hmm. and also set up the expectation that the consumer matters and every touch point matters. 
which is a really solid foundation mm-hmm. for a brand. Yeah. But, you know, there are also, you know, there's there's another side of trying to community build where you try and do it at scale and you do it with digital ads and agencies. And, you know, it never really works the same. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's funny that you say scale because I was just about to say, going off of the <laughs> the <laughs> earlier conversation, that when your founder is in the weeds in the beginning for a long time, that never leaves. And that is scalable because now when I train our customer service team or when I, you know, I'm working with social, the social team, you always have that. It's like, it's so valuable. And it also then drives like product innovation and photo shoots and everything going forward is having that connection. And then obviously communicating to customer service and social that like our community is so important. We wouldn't be here without them. So like treat this like the most precious thing in the entire company, because without it, like this all falls away. And so them understanding that they're always bringing me back ideas from now I'm in the DMS like every once in a while, but Mm -hmm. not as much as I'd like to be, but yeah, they know to bring that back into like, this is the most precious part about the entire company. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about the product. So, you know, you can't build a sustainable business without product that delivers. There's just too much competition. Yeah. And, you know, you, you've you started with freckles, but now you've expanded into to skincare. You've come back to color. Mm-hmm. But at its core, what is your formulation philosophy? What does your development process look like? I guess mm-hmm. both for product and packaging in terms of what you're trying to achieve and any guardrails that you've set. Mm-hmm. So for product innovation, it definitely, st- <laughs> uh, this is another one where I'm like, I wish it was a more interesting answer, but it's real. Des and I, my business partner, <laughs> will be sitting and we'll just be like, you know what I wish existed or wouldn't it be cool if, or what about if somebody did, you know, that's always how it starts. The good mm-hmm. ones, at least, you know, the ones that make it through. Yeah. We just make products that we wish existed. It's <laughs> really that simple. And then as far as guardrails. I think that, you know, when we're listening to our community, like in May, we did our entire theme for the month was vacation skin called vacation skin. And it was all about like skin where you look like you just got back from vacation. Obviously, like we're kind of still easing up on quarantine here in LA. Things are kind of opening, but it's definitely like, how do you look like you just got back from vacation? Like glowy, dewy, blushy freckles without having been on vacation. And (laughs) our products do that. But the concept of vacation skin came from our community up and then we like did this whole, you know, monthly theme around it. And then as far as the packaging, as I said, I'm an interior designer by trade. So I think the product design, which we get a lot of compliments on, and I think it's one of the things that really differentiates us is that it's pretty simple. And we really, Nasera, my art director, really likes to lean into like type and spacing and negative space is a huge thing with Freck we don't make that many rules for us, but one of the things is like, like I said, like I, we make products that we wish existed when we design products, we, I mentally put them into all the different bathrooms that I've designed over my career. You know, the ones from the most beautiful ones to the fugliest ones that I'm, <laughs> I will never admit that I designed and make sure that the products are a reflection of the person who is using them and their space and their life. And we want our products to be their vanity brag, as opposed to us, like forcing our branding down somebody's throat with like really over the top, like eye catching. We just kind of like, I always say that Freck beauty is as much what 
we say as what we don't say. And I think that also translates to product design too. Yeah. No, I, you know, I don't think it's boring at all. I mean, I actually love that you trust your gut and it's sort of on intuition, like, because I think there's this whole trend happening now where data is informing product development. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess just being old, I'm just like, yeah, I love data too, but data is just numbers. Mm -hmm. And if someone's searching for it, it means like, is it really a trend? Because yeah. it's already, someone's already looking for it. Yeah. It's very hard for me in those conversations because people look at me like I'm old and I'm like, you're not I'm, old. You, That's I'm crazy. like, I'm just like, you know, data's fantastic, but it's only a tool. And if that's what you're using to lead your creative process, mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Everyone else is looking at the same data, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I think I think that approach, while it's probably a little bit safer in respects and like maybe better for like a more established brand, I think it kind of is like really lacking innovation because like if I had data on how many people were looking for freckles, I would have never started this company. You right. know what I mean? Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I get it. And now we for sure trust our gut, but also like I try to run it by more ears now, like from finance and marketing, like yeah. people who know more than me just to like gut check, but we do go with our gut. So go with your gut, but gut check a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I think data is really powerful, but I think that if you approach it from sort of that gut instinct mm -hmm. and then go search the data, yes. sometimes you're like, okay, there's enough people looking for it that maybe uh -huh. this could be something. Uh -huh. yeah. So I do think there's a lot of insights that you can get from data, but I always approach it from, can I validate the crazy stuff that floats around in my head? <laughs> yeah, totally. Actually, one of the other things that, sorry if this is like kind of off topic tangent, but one of the other things that I did when I was first, first starting Freck, like even like pre-Kickstarter, I did Google consumer surveys, like as a, just a regular civilian. Uh -huh. I didn't have like a business account or anything. My questions, like if anybody in marketing were to look at the questions, they would be like, this is so like not actually usable data because they were of course like, do you like freckles? You know what I mean? But I spent like $50 and got surveys from, I think like, you know, like 1500 people. And I was like, oh, like people would like freckles. And the way that I phrased it was like, you know, malarkey. But that was another thing that I did to kind of test when there was no data, there was no freckle mm -hmm. products, you know, and gut checking with data is totally a thing too. Like go with your gut, gut check with data. I like yeah. that. <laughs> So just in sort of wrapping it up, you've had one of those sort of true kind of indie beauty real experiences where I think so many founders and not everyone wants to tell the story, but most success stories have kind of this founders hit a bottom where they're like, I have no money. Why am I even doing this? Mm -hmm. They think about throwing in the towel mm -hmm. and then they keep going. And let's face it, luck is also plays a huge part part in, in entrepreneurial mm -hmm. businesses, no matter how much money you raise, you still mm -hmm. need a little bit of luck, but you kept going. So, you know, I think from sort of just an indie beauty founder story, it's truly kind of an inspiration. And I love the fact that you're willing to, to share all the nitty gritty, because I don't think a lot of founders do that. And, Aww. and I agree. I think it's, it's important to share the truth. But what's next for Freck? Like, what does success look like for you? 
Oh, thank you so much for saying that. First of all, it's so kind. And I mean, gosh, Kelly, like your experience is like, I mean, it's just really so nice to hear that from you. Thank you. What's next for Freck? We're just going to try and keep killing it at Sephora. We've been doing really well at Sephora. And so kind of like really pushing and doubling down on that partnership and hopefully expanding into new territories with Sephora and continuing to drive like, badass products. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what makes me happy and connecting with the community, like all the things. My favorite part of my job day to day is going on Instagram and seeing the looks that people tag us in. Like that's Mm -hmm. like, it's been that since the first day and it's still that today. Like it's not all of the other stuff, like still my favorite moment is going on Instagram and seeing what everyone's up to. So continuing that. And then for me personally, I am about to turn 30 in a couple months and I have, this is going to sound like a brag, but it's not. I just, you know, launched at Sephora, which I was like, that would be so crazy if that ever happened. And I also just bought my first house, which really- Congratulations. That's amazing. It's so exciting. So I'm kind of in a place where I'm really like analyzing, like what is going to make me tick for the next five years? You know, like what, what, you know, short-term, long-term goals do I want to set up for myself? Because I've accomplished a lot of things and I don't want to get into a stagnant place where I'm like, what do I do next? You know, I don't think that's like a fun way to live ever. So I'm, to be honest, like I'm kind of in that space right now, figuring that out for myself, but also like it is hard (laughs) running a business. It is hard. So I really would like to sell Freck in probably five years ish, like somewhere, you know, give or take Mm -hmm. around there. So I'm kind of focusing on that and it's, it's not about the money. It's about like, I will need to take a nap at that point. (laughs) So just kind of being, being real with myself and like how, how much grinding I can do. And, and as long as it's fun. So I'm working on that. Well, I think it will be fun to watch. (laughs) Thank you. I love, you know, I am a total branding geek. And when you see a brand that has so much soul and is really, I mean, really, really well designed, it's all the little pieces that come together to make it kind of a dynamic experience. So what you've built is really just fun to watch. Um, And I really do think you're just getting started. So we will definitely be watching and please stay. (laughs) in touch and let us know how things go. And seriously, congratulations on the house. That is, I didn't buy, well, I live in New York. So, you know, we do, we're we're sort of late starters (laughs) when it comes to real estate. Most of us, I don't think I bought my apartment until I was 45. So you're way ahead of me. Oh my gosh. Thank (laughs) you. Yeah. It's like super surreal. I just like, I like figured out how to pay my first mortgage payment this week. And I was like, I don't (laughs) feel like I should be allowed to own a house because I can't even like, there's a lot of stuff, but I don't know. I always joke that I'm a very high functioning, dysfunctional person. So maybe one day I'll figure out how to pay my bills and like shower in a timely matter but thank you so much for having me this was so fun yeah it was Um, and I will definitely be staying in touch and thank you guys for having me yeah absolutely for Remy it's a matter of honesty Freck Beauty doesn't simply check boxes they walk the walk led by a fearless founder that leads by example and is the embodiment of the brand she's launched Building a team to support a business that is in growth mode has been grounded in creating a culture that reflects the DNA of the brand and the community that loves them. 
She's been brutally transparent about the early struggles from creating a product that was not commercially viable to taking money from the wrong investor and becoming the unfortunate butt of a Jimmy Kimmel Live joke, which went viral and led to nasty bullying. And yet, looking back, she wouldn't change a thing. She believes failures force you to rethink what you're doing and create something better. Freck Beauty is an unvarnished founding story with lessons to be learned and plenty of inspiration to keep you going when things get tough. So in the end, it's a matter of honesty. And that's what matters. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hey, I'm Remy. And to me, what matters is honesty. Be honest with yourself and be honest with your mission. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network. The business of being heard.